I hope you are having a uh, good day today. I hope you're having a wonderful day. It is a pleasure to be with you again uh, this week as we continue to look through Philippians. As we prepare our hearts to see and to receive what God has said in His Word, won't you join me in prayer? Father God, Lord God, praise you, God. Today is a good day, Lord. Today is a day where we are able to freely gather together to worship you. It is a good day, Lord. Lord, today is a day where the gift, the invitation of salvation is open even now. It is a good day, Lord. Today is a day where you are pleased that we know you, that we be found in you, that we become more like you. Lord, today is a day because it is one day closer to that great day of your return. Lord, there are brothers and sisters with us here who may not feel it's such a good day, who are facing some sort of suffering, who are feeling the chains of financial hardship and debt, who feel swallowed up by sickness or grieving because of loss. Lord, for some, they may not feel it's such a good day. Lord, I ask that you will just wrap, wrap your arms around them that they will find comfort and encouragement in you. Lord, that they will find comfort and encouragement in the church and their fellow brothers and sisters who humbly will serve them. Lord, today is a good day. It is a day that you have made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. It is in your name, Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you are visiting with us or joining in today, you are coming in week three of a nine-week study. Uh, we are looking through Philippians. And it's been uh, a very, I think, a very enlightening and illuminating study for me, and I hope for you as well, because Philippians, as we've talked about, Philippians is a very unique epistle. Paul is writing to a church, to a church at Philippi that gets it that understands the basic foundational elements of the gospel. So he isn't using this letter to establish the foundation of the gospel. Rather, he is using this letter to encourage them, to exhort them to advance the gospel. This is a joyful letter of, of Paul, from Paul, wanting the church at Philippi to spread the gospel not just in a missions idea, but internally as well. It is the advance of the gospel. And if you were with us last week, we talked about how such an advance can be seen in suffering in the face of opposition. We talked about how being in Christ, having a love that abounds more and more in knowledge and truth, how that is a conduct visible in suffering. How we stand united 
in suffering and that suffering is a gift because suffering if we are suffering for the gospel if we are under attack for the gospel then we are on the side of the gospel and we talked about how suffering is proof that we are on the side of God the side of heaven who will ultimately be victorious that's what we looked at last week so if you missed last week you just got the sermon in about a minute. It's like those TV shows previously on 24, you know, previously at South Shore Baptist. You know, and so that's what we were looking at. We were looking at this conduct worthy of the gospel and suffering. And it's a conduct of unity from forces from without coming on in. Now we're going to look at conduct worthy of the gospel regarding internal matters. Not necessarily in the face of opposition from the outside, but regarding the internal reality, the internal relationships within the church. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me as we study Philippians. I'm going to ask you actually to start with the passage we looked at last week, chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1161. Now, I've been, if you're not using a pew Bible and you want to know where to find it, I've been telling these people every week about this way of knowing where, you know, Philippians and Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians all stand together. I've been talking about this little acronym that my Sunday school teacher in second grade taught me, you know, George eats pork chops, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to let you off the hook. I'm not going to talk about Georgie's pork chops. So if you find yourself in Galatians today, I'm not going to tell you that you found yourself in George and you need to move over into pork, into Philippians. I'm going to give you a break today because I know I've been hammering that. You realize I just the joke in that I just gave that to you. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And now we come to the passage for today. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. I want to let you in on a little secret. I want to let you in on something you may not have been aware of. Maybe not even been told about this epistle to the Philippians. It may even sound a little scandalous. Paul wrote a letter 
This is actually a letter. I know, it's crazy. But it's true. It's not a collection of psalms. It's not a collection of proverbs. It's a letter. Of course, right? Obvious. Now, why do I hammer that point? Well, often when we approach an epistle, we read it. Like it's a proverb or a psalm. We take a passage and just look at that passage without any context of what may have preceded it or what may follow it. Now, that would be absurd to do in a modern letter. I mean, let's say if I opened up a letter and you read, Amy broke up with Mike. What do we do with that? Are we sad? Oh no, poor Mike, he's crushed. I don't know. Do, are we pretty nonchalant? Well, saw it coming. They weren't doing too well anyway. Five for the best. Or, I don't know, maybe we're happy. About time he dumped that, she dumped that bum. You know, he's as endearing as a tetanus shot. You know? <laughs> maybe we're excited. Maybe we're like, oh yeah, Amy's available. <laughs> right? You, you don't know. You have no context. The same here today. That's why I had to start with verse 27. You see, the passage we're looking at today builds right off of what we just talked about last week. And actually, it, it very much anticipates what we're going to talk about next week. In fact, we're probably in part one of a two-part mini-series, which is actually parts three and four of a nine-part series, which covers the central part of the Epistle of Philippians. We're having fun, right? I mean, this is fun stuff. But you remember last week we talked about that very first conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and how that word conduct isn't just simply live or walk, but it is to behave in the manner of a citizen, to behave appropriately to one's status, to behave as one who is of a citizen of heaven. And how that manifests itself in suffering. Well, that command to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel is still carrying through. In fact, that is carrying us through this entire passage. So now we've come to the point of conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel in relation to our unity within the church. It's also odd that it's building off suffering. I mean, look at 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship, any tenderness, any compassion. I mean, it's kind of odd because Paul just got done talking about the shared suffering that the Philippians and he had. And now he's talking about this shared compassion, shared tenderness. They almost seem to work against each other. I mean, is, is Paul just crazy? How can Paul be talking about at the same time how Christians share suffering and yet share encouragement, comfort? Well, it really is sort of indicative of the paradox that we, believers in Christ, live in right now. We live in a very weird time. You see, you have two ages that are sort of overlapping. You've got one age, the age of this world, the, the age that is against the gospel, the age characterized by sin, the age we were full-fledged members in standing. And into this age came our Lord, came Christ. 
He invaded into it. He inaugurated the kingdom of God. And with his death and resurrection on the cross, the kingdom of God began. Now, of course, this kingdom has no end. The kingdom of this world will be judged and fade away. God's kingdom will last forever. But right now, we're in this weird little overlap. So if you are faith in Christ, you are simultaneously experiencing the wonders and the comforts of being in Christ that will last forever, as well as experiencing the enmity and the hate of Christ that is from the world. So Paul can quite easily talk about sharing and suffering and sharing and encouragement at the same time. Now what are we to do with these four phrases of verse 1? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any, any tenderness and compassion... What do those mean? How are we to understand that? I can let you know it's a matter of no small scholarly debate. As I was researching and studying this, there was all kinds of questions out there. Who's the source of the love? Who's the object of the love? What's the difference between tenderness and compassion? What does encouragement mean? I mean, volumes written on this. And as I was studying on it, I was reading on it, I got to thinking that's probably the wrong way to really approach that verse. It's probably incorrect to sit down and methodologically just analyze and break it apart. Because you see, this epistle was meant to be read. And I believe what is happening, I believe these are compact and vague on purpose. I believe Paul is being very emotional here. It's almost as if it's getting out of hand. His sentence is just flowing. Because he is uh, such an earnestness to present this need for unity and that he is basing it on the resources available in Christ that it almost starts to crescendo. I don't think the correct way to read this is if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. No, I don't think that's the correct way to read it. I think it's, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness, any compassion. I mean, Paul is emotional here. We need to let Scripture be emotional. We need to let it live. We need to feel the the wonder of what Christ has done. We need to be willing to be amazed by miracles. I think Paul is just overflowing. He's wanting to get to the point so quickly that he is just throwing out all these wonderful spiritual resources that we have in Christ because he knows they've experienced these. He knows it's not if you have or if you haven't. It's more of since you have. Since you have encouragement. Since you have comfort, fellowship, tenderness, and compassion. Then... He goes on. But that's a sense we should feel. Be willing to not be only intellectual when you read God's Word. Paul is exuberance, effusive in his beginning. Now, if any of these four issues have relevance at all, what does Paul say? Verse 2. 
then make my joy complete. And that struck me odd when I read it. I expected to read something like, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then love your Lord, or then serve your God, or something like that. Instead, Paul says, then make my joy complete. And it kind of seemed strange, because it almost seemed, at first glance, self-centered, or, or narcissistic a little bit, that Paul was wanting some benefit here. And that would be a very easy reading if we didn't realize this was a letter. If we hadn't read already about the intimate personal connection between Paul and the Philippian church. If we hadn't read already in chapter 1 about how Paul joyfully prayed for them. About their partnership with him in the gospel. And I believe what you're seeing here is Paul's pastor heart. That Paul... Paul so wants to just be full of joy. Full of joy in praising God for what the Philippian church is doing. That there's just one area left out that is his concern. And and if they address this one area, then his joy will overflow. Overflow in sharing with them in the partnership of the gospel. Now what is this area that they're lacking? Well, as we read on, it's, there's some risk of disunity. There is some lack of unity in the Philippian church. Now note, it's, it's not the Corinthian church here. It's not even the Roman church where Paul is a bit more forceful in his commands for unity. So I don't think we should see that this is a church that is split. But Paul recognizes that there is something at risk here that's potentially harmful to the Philippian church. We know in chapter 4 that there are people who are bickering with each other. And we also know that in the span of about six verses here, he's talked about unity quite a lot. And a little rule of thumb is if you read a prohibition or an exhortation for something quite a lot, probably means that's happening or not happening quite a lot. For example, if you were to read a transcript of an average night at the Jennings household, it would be, I mean, just you know, pure on the edge of your seat excitement, trust me. But you would, you would hear phrases in the same night, such as, Avery, what are you doing out of bed? Avery, get back in bed. Avery, that's unacceptable. You're going to be in bed. If you get out of bed one more time. So you would probably figure out pretty quickly, Avery's not staying in bed. <laughs> right? Now, I haven't said Avery's not staying in bed, but you get, you get the hint. So when Paul's calling for unity so many times, you get the hint that there's something wrong. Make my joy complete. And then he comes to what unity should look like. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now we talked last week quite a bit about unity. And I'm I'm going to briefly talk about it again, and I feel comfortable doing that. Because Paul felt comfortable talking about unity twice in a row. 
He felt inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. So why shouldn't we talk about it again? Unity. Unity as a church. What is the source of our unity? It is the Holy Spirit. The reason we are here together is the Holy Spirit. Not personalities, not styles. The Holy Spirit. The purpose for our unity? The advance of the gospel. Everything we do, we talked about this last week, everything we do in the church, from the smallest to the greatest of ministries, should be for the advance of the gospel. That is our purpose. You see, in Christ is our unity, and Christ is the source of our unity, and for Christ is the purpose of our unity. And I think that's what it means when it says being like-minded. That doesn't mean we're always going to think the same. That doesn't mean we're always going to you know, know exactly how we want to do something. We're going to have disagreements. It comes as a surprise to me, but it actually happens that people don't always agree with my way. They're crazy. We all know that. But that happens. And guess what? Sometimes people aren't always going to agree with your way of doing things. You might even have to accept that your way is rejected. That's going to happen. But that's disagreements on procedure, not priority. We should be of the same mind in priority, which is the advance of the gospel. We may disagree on what method to use, but not what purpose. This is unity. This is unity in the church. And such unity, how you know that there is a church of one purpose, which is the advance of the gospel, is characterized in the next few verses. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And now we come to it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. A church that is like-minded, has the same love, one in spirit and purpose, will do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider each other's better than yourselves. Selfish ambition. Really, to some extent, you can argue is at the heart of all of our sins selfish ambition, the desire to promote our own interests over against the interests of others. I mean, this is obviously quite clearly the message of the world, is it not? The message of the world is you get what's coming to you. You get yours. Me and mine alone. And we fight for everything. We desire to elevate ourselves above other people. I mean, that is selfish ambition. It has no place in the church. Selfish ambition marks the world. It does not mark those of heaven. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Underscore the nothing. This is not an arena to promote your interests. This is not an arena to promote yourself. Do not come to church with the frame of mind of who can I sit next to that will make me look good? 
Who can I meet to elevate my status? Who will talk to me so I can be somebody in the church? That is selfish ambition. And vainglory. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit is that praise, that glory that only the self-blessed possess. If you're in the business of blessing yourself, congratulations. You have vain glory and vain conceit. That is not the mark of a Christian. To God be the glory. Not to me. Not to you. This is not a house of human advancement. This is a house of God, of the advance of the gospel. A church that is unified is a church where its people do not seek their glory. This has always been Paul's solution to churches that are divided. It's what he said to Corinth, it's what he said to Rome, it's what he said here. There's a church that is divided. The solution, the cure, serving in humility. If you drink from that addictive elixir of power and public acclaim, it will rip the church apart. For that is the way of the world, not of heaven. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, what is humility? I can tell you what it's not. It's not that false modesty where the person, in their own obsequiousness, is actually getting acclaim. You know, the one who is always, always humble so that they can be told. They're always humble. You know? That ain't it. It's also not that disgusting, abject servility where there's absolutely no sense of self-worth. I mean, that is... That is repulsive. That's not humility. I mean, we were made in God's image. Right? God loved us, so He sent His Son. There is self-worth. We are made in God's image. So humility is not that, that groveling person with absolutely zero sense of self-esteem at all. No, that's not humility. Let me tell you what the Bible teaches humility is. It's what is taught from the old to the new. Humility is the proper recognition by a created being before their creator. Humility is recognizing that I stand totally, totally, completely below God. That I am not God. And that you stand equally in that same stance with me. No one higher no one lower. It's the proper recognition of the created being before the creator. You see, Jewish monotheism was quite easy. 
Creator, God. Created, not God. So, animals, plants, created, not God. Humans, angels, created, not God. God, Creator. God, the glory. Humility is that essence of recognizing who God is. Now the amazing, the amazing wonder, the amazing absurdity of it all is that God, the only one worthy of glory, God, chose to become flesh and to come to earth to serve and to die for us. Christian humility has its basis in Christ's humility. If the creator of the universe deemed it good to serve, how much more so should we? That is the mark of being a citizen of heaven. If our Lord humbled himself to serve, how much more should we? If anyone ever asks you what Paul's ethic is or how he understands his ethics, it's verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not just the interests of those you want attention from. Don't just serve leaders so that they will give you attention. Serve others. Leaders, you should be serving others. Praying for each other, meeting each other's needs in whatever way possible. For that is what our Lord did. Our Lord fed our Lord healed. Our Lord prayed. Our Lord taught. Our Lord grieved. Our Lord died for others. So what do we do as a church with this? We stop competing amongst each other. We stop trying to find ways to be Involved so as to be noticed. Be involved so as to serve. Such is unity. Such is being one. For you see, our Lord, who was in the very nature God, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped. But gave everything up, emptied himself, became nothing, took on the very nature of a servant. Next week, 
we will come to that passage in which Christ is the ultimate example of humility. Of our Lord dying on the cross so that we might be saved. Let us, from this day to that day, let us walk in humility with each other. Thanks, Mark. Can I have the Brazil team come down here to the front and join me?